Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Last week I talked with New York Times and USA Today bestselling author David R. George III about All Good Things, the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's a masterful hour of syndicated TV. Uh, it's certainly in the running for best TNG episode of all time, and it's peak TNG. One of the things that Dave and I agreed on is that All Good Things is the perfect distillation of a next-gen episode. Uh, it's a model by which any other TNG script could be judged. All the well-worn tropes are there. You've got the universe in peril, time travel, Picard wrestling with a philosophical dilemma, red alerts, anomalies, anti-proton beams, and of course, Q. I think we also agreed that one more Q episode would have been too many Q episodes. I mean, give or take the Robin Hood one, Q was definitely on TNG just enough, and one more would have definitely soured it. All Good Things does exactly what the show had been doing for seven years. It just does it superlatively, and it puts a period on the next generation sentence while assuring us the story itself will continue. And continue, of course, it did with four feature films of various quality, but the next generation TV show remains a warm and timeless atmosphere that keeps it from aging out of our consideration. Even while Discovery is flaring and strobing with explosions and holograms, the quietude and dorky confidence of the next generation remains attractive, like like a fashion look that's part out of touch and part avant-garde. It's just enough out of fashion to never be out of fashion. The moral certainty with a side of navel gaze that colors TNG may have been born out of the neoliberalism of the 80s, but it wasn't necessarily a bad foundation on which to renew and prolong a franchise that has always been and will continue to be about championing the crazy idea that, hey, if everybody is treated equally and allowed to thrive, maybe we'll go on forever? In space? I had all these thoughts in my head when I called up Robert Evans. Robert is a writer and a podcaster. He's a former contributor to Crack.com, and he was their personal experiences editor. He's a conflict journalist. He's someone who goes to the places that we don't like to think about, and he gets the stories of the people who live there. There's a YouTube video called, uh, Yo Man, Check Out This Rocket Launcher. That's a great example of what he does. He's reporting from Iraqi Kurdistan in that one. He's got a podcast on the How Stuff Works Network called Behind the Bastards, where he digs into the lives and times of some of history's greatest monsters. He's someone who spends a lot of time gazing into the abyss, so I was surprised and pleased to find out that when he's not abyss-gazing, he often returns to Star Trek The Next Generation for the optimistic world it promises. Robert and I talk about his background with sci-fi, about the attractive moral consistency of TNG, uh, Werner Herzog, and how Star Trek is going to save us. That's coming right up. Stay tuned after the interview to hear more about Robert's other work and where you can find his book. Plus an update on what's coming up on next week's show. Dump out that week synth the hall, pour yourself three fingers of the good stuff. And with that, let's get underway. You were uh, telling me about Logan. Yeah, so I had this friend Logan, and he loved Star Trek, particularly TNG. And we watched a bunch of episodes of the Next Gen with him, and he would he would loan me his recorded VHS tapes of Next Gen, and oh, yeah. a bunch of a bunch of the the novels which I read every chance I got as a little kid. 
So that was like most of my experience of TNG. It was kind of like slipshod and, and just piecemeal up until I was like 19 years old, maybe 20, and I was living out of like home for the first time, and I had access to a really good torrent site. Uh, it used to go by the name of Horse Porn Junction, which was like a, a, a gag name. It was through something awful. So okay. I found on that torrent site of just all of TNG and I downloaded it my roommate and I watched every episode start to finish about three times in a row over like a four or five month period we're just smoking tons and tons of weed and watching Star Trek and so that was that was my how I really became uh, uh, like acquainted with the whole story and when I fell in love with it were you into other sci-fi as a kid, like other books or oh, shows? Oh, absolutely. Hugely into yeah. other sci-fi. Um, I, read, spent a, I, I read pretty much any sci-fi book I could get my hands on from, like, the Star Wars Extended Universe stuff to, like, more serious yeah. science fiction like Heinlein and, and Asimov and Frank Herbert and stuff. Yeah. Um, I was a big Warhammer nerd as a kid, so I was into all of those <laughs> books, too. Um, but there was always something special about star trek and tng in particular that like no other and it's still what what makes it special is that it's like the only um thoroughly optimistic science fiction i've ever encountered yeah yeah dystopia is is a popular brand and remains one today but you're right i mean it does and it has a lot of the dna of those authors that you were talking about oh yes like heinlein and asimov and yeah I, I, how are you a teenage Warhammer guy? Doesn't don't you need like millions of dollars to be able to play Warhammer and buy all the <sighs> figures and paint and stuff? I mean, I would mow lawns, uh, five or six lawns <laughs> a weekend okay. sometime for months at a sure. time, and I would you know I, I, every birthday was nothing but Warhammer and stuff. I I still suspect to this day I've spent more money on Warhammer than I have on drugs, and I have spent a lot of money on drugs. Um, yeah. Well, I was trying to – let's talk about drugs. Uh, I was trying to put together a picture of your career for my intro, and I realized I don't really understand your career. Uh, I know you're a writer. I also have this idea of you as a, a foreign correspondent. Uh, you are a psychonaut. You're shooting guns. Did you think to yourself, this is what I want to do. I want to be this journalist, this person who finds himself in weird places talking to weird people. I mean, uh, that was always what I wanted. I, I did – so I started out just sort of – working for Cracked mostly on the back end. I was an intern there initially, and then I would I laid out, there were a period of years where I laid out almost every article that wound up on the front page, and I would do the picture captions and stuff. And it yeah. was a job I could do from anywhere. So I just kind of started traveling around the world and going to places that interested me, some of which were uh, on the more dangerous end of things while I was doing that. And then when that job expanded into doing like the personal experience articles where I got to do some stuff that verged on journalism, I just started uh, sending myself to places like Iraq and Ukraine and covering uh, conflict in those places. Um, Because again, it was just what interested me. And uh, it's not, you can't really make a living as a conflict journalist right now. Like some really great people like Salome Anderson uh, have have gotten out of, of covering war just because you almost can't afford to do it. Uh, so, I don't know, while I could, I did it as much as I could. Um, it was all kind of like, my whole career has been just a series of accidents. Did you ever get anybody, like, looking at you in a particular way because you're going to all these places like Iraq 
and uh, places where Americans generally are not going to decide to just up and go to? You know, there's a couple of things I'd say. One of them is that you and most people, because a lot of people ask me that and are surprised, most people be surprised by how many Americans wind up visiting Iraq. For reasons other than explicitly military purposes, you run into okay. a lot of Americans and other foreigners in places like that because they're they're investing or because they're contractors, because they're running drones in some sort of base or whatever, or because they work for a major oil company. Um, so it, it's not terror. Like I, I never got looked at sideways by customs people. Um, I did have a German airport security crew stop me because my bag tested positive for explosives residue because I'd been <laughs> tossing it in the back of Iraqi Humvees. And the Humvees, they, it would just be like a pile of missiles and grenades yeah, okay, um, that sure. I just like drop a backpack on. And then, yeah, yeah, I'm in the German, I'm in the airport, I think Schoenheim maybe, I forget exactly which air, or Schoenfeld, um, I forget exactly which airport, but... They do the little swab thing, and it comes back positive on my bag, and I'm like, "Yeah, that's that sounds about right." <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get somebody's attention. Well, one one aspect of journalism is research, and I'm always impressed at the depth of your research, uh, particularly for your How Stuff How Stuff Works show. And you paint a very thorough portrait of your subjects. There's a lot of shitty people in history. What makes somebody specifically a candidate for an appearance on Bastards? they got to be an interesting kind of shitty, um, which sure. most of the worst ones are. But it's like the difference between, uh, I don't know, like uh, you, you can look at people, like a, a lot of really terrible people um just aren't that that interesting because they're just sort of the shallow kind of horrible that that either uh, like I'm not interested in serial killers. I'm not interested in a guy like Ted Bundy because um, yeah. he's just this dude who liked having sex with like murdering people and having sex with their dead bodies and he, that's what he did a bunch and he covered yeah. it up and he hid it and like I get why other people are interested in him. But, like, that's less interesting to me than a guy like Saddam Hussein from, from, like, age six has just been handed guns by people and told to solve his problems that way and, like, becomes this bizarre dictator with a fascination for writing romance novels and these clear, like, urges in his <laughs> yeah. soul to do something else. And that guy yeah. that guy's more interesting to me than, um, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or the dude who dressed up as a clown and killed kids. Yeah, that, was there any? That's so strange. Was there ever anyone that you uh, you started digging into and you began to feel like they were misunderstood? I mean, they're still the perpetrator of bad things, but but you could see how they were a victim of their circumstance. Um, I mean, they're all victims of their circumstance, even Hitler, which doesn't at all mitigate the horrible things that they did. But you yeah. don't run into anyone who's in that top tier of monster who didn't like. It didn't have some really fucked up stuff happen to them. Like none of them just grew up with fine lives. Like Stalin, terrible, terrible monster. His brother, who he loved and looked up to, was like murdered by the czar when he was a teenage kid. <laughs> yeah, and so he yeah. grew up with this like this pit of anger inside of him. And it's like, yeah, doesn't mitigate the Holodomor, but like, yeah, you you definitely come to appreciate that. I'd say the only one of them that I've come to really like is L. Ron Hubbard, because you, you can't read enough <laughs> about that guy and not walk away like with some respect, because like, he just yeah. he just took it so far. Yeah, he had an idea and he just and he kept going with it. Yeah, way further than anyone else would have. <laughs> well, I can't remember if you covered this on the show or not, but I'm always fascinated about his connection with Jack Parsons and like what went mm -hmm. down with that whole thing. Yeah, and I. I didn't go into that on my episode, but I have read a lot about it and how, like, they supposedly, like, summoned that, that 
whatever whatever it is, and they both were having sex with the same lady, and there's this weird magic ritual and stuff. Um, and they were going to sell yachts. Yeah, they were also. Now he, I did go into that one because he stole Jack Parsons' yacht. Uh, yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the the sex magic and stuff. I don't know. Like I, it's. Uh, I don't know how much of that Hubbard believed. Um, uh huh. Which is which would make it less interesting to me. I know Parsons believed. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think Hubbard might just have been in it for the sex and because he was a con man. And at the same time, Parsons is, uh, you know, he's building rockets and he's uh, laying all the groundwork that's going to put us on the moon in just a couple of years. So it's a it's a weird story. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Um, he was cool, too. Like, if you see the picture of him, he's, like, good looking. He wears a leather jacket and rides a motorcycle. Yeah, I, I'd like to talk more about Parsons at some point, but I don't think he really qualifies as a bastard, which is sort of one of, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, one right. of the requirements for my show. But he's, he's, he's an interesting <laughs> figure, for sure. Uh, your book, A Brief History of Vice, examines how booze, sex, and drugs gave us our modern world. And in the book, you posit that mankind built cities so it can throw itself better parties. How do you come to that conclusion? I mean, well, okay, so when you when you look at sort of what's theorized back in like the Natufian period, which we're talking about like 14-something thousand B.C., so a very, very, very long time ago, before recorded history tells us much of anything, we know that people who are still mostly hunter-gatherers are brewing beer. And from that and some other archaeological evidence, they suspect that the first the first time early humans started coordinating in large groups, you know, of multiple tribes and working together was in order to brew more beer, provide more food for these gigantic, like, multi-day long feasts that seem to be sort of both, like, you know, hold the same purpose that holidays do for us today, but were also periods where these different groups would network and where these these different tribes would like settle their grievances and make arrangements for who could go where and what territory was whose during the yeah. year, which is in, in a very real way kind of a, the earliest form of international governance that we see evidence of. Um, and there's some suspicions. It's the kind of thing that's probably impossible to prove as a matter of like scientific fact. But there are some suspicions that the when the first groups of people started forming cities, it was essentially so that they could support, grow more food, brew more beer, and like the, these things that they had started doing to throw these feasts, they wanted to be able to do that more often. And they wanted to be able to have more. And like it, that sort of evolved over time into what we know of as cities. Um, yeah. So it's not quite as simple as saying we threw cities to... Uh, we built cities to throw better parties, but we started the process that led to us having cities so that we could throw better parties and drink more beer. It reminds me of, I think it's uh, the second, the restaurant at the end of the universe by Douglas Adams, where they have the never ending party, which is like a, a party that's just been going on forever and then they start running out of chips and stuff. So they put like rockets on the party and now they're like a raiding party and raid other parties for their stuff. (laughs) Oh uh, yeah, I, I I do love Douglas Adams. That was another piece of science fiction that like I was was very much into. Was like a teenage boy. Uh, was was the the Hitchhikers, all five books in the trilogy. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Still a very big influence. <laughs> and I would say a huge influence on literally everyone who worked at Cracked. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I there's <laughs> maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, but it just doesn't seem to be a lot of. Uh, comedic sci-fi these days um, outside of, you know, your Rick and Morty, and <laughs> that's about it. 
Yeah, I think that would probably be the gold standard for sci-fi comedy right now. Um, I am a huge fan of the Orville. I'm not normally a Seth MacFarlane guy, uh, but Interesting. modern day, like uh, I, I'm not personally a fan of, of d- discovery of what I've seen of it because it's more focused. And I get why people enjoy it, but it's more focused on action and war and fighting than what I really am into Star Trek for. And yeah. uh, the Orville's the only. TV show I can find right now that's a really just sort of like procedural science fiction where you've just got this group of really nice people who are all focused on exploration and discovery and running a really ethical society uh, <laughs> sure. being 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 nice to the people they meet. Uh, I really that's what I miss from TNG. That's what I yeah. like, enjoy most about it is that kind of optimism at the core of it that we'll get through the worst parts of our civilization eventually and become better. Um, yeah. And I, 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 yeah, sorry. Like, I, I like that they're both post-capitalist. Um, not that I'm anti-capitalist, but I don't think any system that governs humanity lasts forever. And I enjoy that Star Trek was was bold enough and has always really been bold enough to imagine a humanity after that is done, once we move on to something else. I think that's one of the things I like most about it. The world that we see in Trek is is weird in that way. They've done all this work to clean up their society and provide for everyone. Um, and they're very, you know, they're very woke. They're very self-consciously woke. They're always talking about how cool they are with whatever you want to do as long as nobody's getting hurt. But then they go, they go back to their rooms and they're like playing racquetball or reading Shakespeare yeah. or something, something kind of square. Yeah. And the lives of these people who live in this permissive um, social anarchy, they don't seem to be leaning into it very much. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to be honest, I think a huge part of that was a budgetary limitation to where, OK, if you're going to have someone listening to music, it had better be rights free <laughs> classical music because gotcha. we, we can't afford to have Michael Jackson playing through like this episode or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that was probably a, a conscious artistic choice to kind of try to make it seem a little outside of time by not tying it directly to pop culture. Um, yeah. The Orville does much more of a uh, where these people like are into stuff. A lot of the like they watch stuff and listen to stuff that's more contemporary music and have more contemporary interests. And I'm interested, okay. you know, when the show is as old as TNG is now, how it will have aged as opposed to TNG. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that that that's something I wonder about. That's something that I think about as well. Just the idea that it's showing this. It makes me wonder if like we can get there, if we can achieve something like Trek. Because as a people, currently, we're so ridiculous and we'll fall for anything. Oh God, and, we're so dumb. I know. And in the in the Trek universe, you know, things get a lot worse before they start getting better. But even in our real world, we've managed to dodge, for now, uh, World War Three. We keep making the same stupid mistakes. And the farther we go, it, the more Trek seems to me like an alternate universe, like we'll never get there. Yeah, I feel that way a lot of the time, too. Um, it's one of those, a, a big part of my time is uh, countering violent extremism research. I actually lecture at uh, the American University about like fighting of the way terrorist groups organize online. And lately I've been focused particularly on far right uh, violent extremist groups and how they use the internet. And uh, it's, it's one of those things I've talked to in part of my research, a guy named Chris Piccolini, who is um, a former neo-Nazi who now works on de-radicalizing neo-Nazis. And his attitude on how you stop this sort of thing, how you stop people from falling for these violent fascistic ideologies is, is better education. 
that more comprehensive education that actually teaches people. Like a lot of it, I, I think, is the stuff that I talk about on my podcast is like, let's actually dig into how these dictators rose to power. Let's dig into how these massacres happen and like what people yeah. were saying in the media and talking about like, if you know that history, if you know the history of conmen and grifters and the kind of language they use, you're less yeah. vulnerable to them. And I, I think... And I, I think that is something that Star Trek really focuses on is that like this is a society where we educate people and where we value the development of the human mind above everything else. And in that sort of society, certain things just don't happen anymore. Um, yeah. I don't know if we'll live long enough to get there. Um, <laughs> but I do think that fiction like Star Trek is an important part of giving us a chance at living long enough to get there. I, I'm a big fan of Werner Herzog. Uh, I think he's one of the brightest minds in the world at this moment. Um, and I, I, I think back to, there was a, there was a documentary he was in called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe, where he, yeah, he bet a right, friend right. of his, uh, <laughs> that his friend wouldn't make a documentary or if he did, he'd eat his shoe and his friend made the documentary. So Herzog being a fundamentally honest man, ate his shoe. Right. Um, and he's an, interviewed in the back of a car and he says something along the lines of what have we done to our images? What have we done to our embarrassed landscapes? I have said this before and I will repeat it again as long as I'm able to talk. If we do not develop adequate images, we will die out like dinosaurs. Um, and I, I firmly believe that. And I, by images, he's talking about stories, about like myths. And in some other times when he says the quote, he'll say myths. If we don't build better, if we don't develop better myths, we're, we're doomed to go the way to the dinosaurs. And right. I, uh, I am someone who is very critical of a lot of the popular fiction, and particularly science fiction of the day, um, because I think that there is a degree to which it can become commodified that it loses all sort of mythic power. Um, I think about my dad, who grew up in New York in the 1950s, and how powerful a myth Superman was to him, and how much it meant to him. And I don't know anyone that is taken to the same extent emotionally by any of the superheroes and superhero movies that we have today. And I think it's because they have been so deeply, and I don't, that may be changing because the way people have reacted to the, the new Spider-Verse movie uh, reminds me more of the way my dad would talk about Superman and feeling about huh. him when he was a kid. So yeah. that, that does give me some hope. But I think in general, the um, the darkness of a lot of these stories, they're like, the kind of shallowness of their message, the shallowness of their depiction of evil, like Superman in the 1920s went after the KKK. And like, <laughs> right. like that's 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 a real bad guy. It's not, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, we made a robot too smart or whatever. Um, oh, the toy man, yeah, right. Yeah. I. So I think that what Herzog is saying is really true because when I look at the dangers of the fascist right in particular, uh, and there's certainly dangers on the left, but when I look at the danger, like these, these neo-Nazi terrorist groups that I study, um, what the kids who fall for them fall for, and what the kids who fell for ISIS fell for, because I spent hundreds of hours reading ISIS's propaganda, is this vision of the world that these groups create, this vision of uh, the, these, these people's place in, in the Nazi case, a racial struggle, in ISIS's case, a religious struggle. They're telling a really good story, and that captivates these kids and makes, you, know, you people will die for a good story, and they'll certainly kill for one. It's, it's one of the only things that we've reliably killed and died for over the last 10,000, 14, 16,000 years since the Natufian period. Yeah. Um, and I think the trouble is finding a story that's compelling enough that people want to live for it. Because 
it's not that's certainly not an easier easy story to tell it's way more easy to imagine a, a, a post-apocalyptic hellscape and people like fighting to the death in it and like or like a spy who fighting terrorists or stuff like that but none of that right. posits a real image of the future um yeah. of, of what can be and that's why i think star trek has so much importance to me and why i think something like it is critical if we're going to get out of this societal rut that we're driving ourselves into is we yeah. need an optimistic positive myths that people can want to aspire to that are um that aren't just focused on a badass fighting people. Well, maybe it's good that they're boring then. Maybe it's good that they're squares because, you know, work is boring and they're keeping together, you know, the fabric of society and they're trying to build something something better so they don't have time to go off and have cool laser fights, you know, like other heroes of sci-fi epics. Well, and I just, they're, they're one of my favorite episodes, and I, I, I'm bad on the names of episodes, but you, you'll know it when I, it's the one where, the, the the crystalline entity attacks that that uh that uh, uh colony and Riker's trying to get his you know rocks off with this lady and then she gets murdered by the, the right, crystalline right, entity yep. and then yeah. uh, they bring on that old lady who lost her son when it destroyed Data's homeworld and the this monster has killed God knows how many thousands of people including hundreds of Federation citizens and still when this lady destroys it uh she's it's 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 She's reacted to with horror by everyone else that she would kill this thing because they all right. just understand it's an animal. It doesn't mean what it's doing, and it's it's possibly unique. So there are a variety of things we might need to do to protect people from this, but just killing it is unethical. Yeah, and we won't do it. It's the same with the episode where they they capture Hugh, the Borg, and they t- they talk about can we put a virus in this thing to wipe out its people, and they realize that because it's it's become an individual. Like, even though it might save billions of lives to do this thing, murdering an individual in that way would make them, you know, essentially exactly the same as a terrorist group like ISIS. And it's we're not going to do that. Um, right. That kind of moral compass is just, it gives me goosebumps to talk about. I can't imagine a show today being as morally consistent as Star Trek The Next Generation was. Yeah, there's there's a we talked earlier on a on an earlier show about like a smell test for the prime directive like when you're watching an episode and somebody's going to do something that seems like it violates the prime directive. I'm not even in Starfleet, but I'm like, "Ooh, I wouldn't do that. That's going to violate the prime directive." And it's that same thing that you talk of of you just know sort of what Trek morality is. Yeah. And it all comes from this show, you know, people with silly putting in their foreheads. So I think it's really it's really uh inspiring in that way. I feel like if we actually ever do get to space, It'll probably be a lot different. I think it it would probably be a lot more like The Expanse. Yeah, I was just gonna say The Expanse, which I yeah, think well, is the best science fiction being written right now. I, I think okay. the most the most true to how people will be. Yeah, I mean, it would we'd still be you know factional as a species, and money would still be way more involved, and commerce and co- corporations would hold sway over over everybody. Yeah, I love the expanse. I, I love the um, the linguistic side of the expanse because they're so yeah. good about that. They're like, yeah. it's like the only thing in science fiction com- comparable to what Tolkien did with uh, you know all the different language groups yeah. that he came sure. up with. It's really amazing. I've wondered what the Federation's art and fiction is like. I mean, they're not monolithic. There's hundreds yeah. of worlds in the Federation, but knowing that 
that that fact that there's all these other races and having space travel and the wonders of the universe and if suffering and pain is a, is a catalyst for great art i wonder if their art is any good if the art of utopian society is like really worth it yeah that's possible and i i wonder too with like kinks uh if if everyone grows up in a sexually healthy environment where they all get good sex ed and nobody is abused do we have as many kinks is like everyone really vanilla because nobody got spanked as a kid so nobody's into spanking or like like i i wonder about that as well like are they all are they That's all interesting is there is there no market for sex toys in the future because everybody's just bland and healthy <laughs> yeah or everybody's cool with everything they always yeah. seem to like they always have an, uh, I, there's like this retarded sexuality that happens a lot on Trek where they talk about how cool they're they are and they're into everything and I'll keep party right now I don't care and then they're confronted with like some kind of sex thing and they're like well, I don't know there's a lot of like raised eyebrows and nobody ever really pulls the trigger on anything yeah and again that's that's probably more a symptom of the fact that it was made in the 90s when you could show less of that stuff and they were I think trying to be you know down for a, a wider audience but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's definitely like I don't know. There, there's that episode where like Riker, uh, Riker's in gets involved in that like I guess that like you'd call it a gender queer uh, relationship. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Um, they tried. <laughs> yeah, they tried. That's true. An attempt was made. Uh, Trek is always tackling through uh, allegory these themes and problems that we're worried about, and it has the luxury of just taking like the highest elevation morally and saying this is wrong, a prejudice against such and such is wrong. And we in 20th century Earth, the present, you know, we don't have everything figured out, but we don't necessarily need Star Trek to show us Kirk and Uhura kissing. Like we're, there are some things that we're, we're cool with now. So with that in mind, with a modern audience, like do you think there are specific issues that new episodes of Trek should be addressing? You know, I think one that they've always addressed and, and need to do more now than ever is the post-capitalist nature of their society. And yeah. it is the idea of a society where these people are still motivated to achieve and to accomplish and to do incredible things and money is zero factor in it. And I think that's probably the most subversive thing about the show today. You know, there's that great moment in a, uh, uh, in DS9 where um, uh, Quark and O'Brien are talking. And Quark's like, asks him what happened to all of Earth's capitalists. And O'Brien's like, you might not want to look that one up, Quark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's a really... I think that's important to, to talk about now. I think the environmental like factor like i think i think there's a lot of room for star trek to talk about uh climate change especially in terms of like uh new societies that are encountered that might be at a similar point to where we are now i would love to see an episode of star trek where they encounter a society that are destroying their world for short-term fuel revenues and debate on whether or not to intervene and whether or not it's appropriate to intervene when they see a society going in a dark direction the way ours seems to be going. That that would be yeah. a really interesting episode to see sort of 24th century morality applied to that. The Federation's like, you know, this near-perfect society, and usually we kind of like foist off the problems or issues, you know, on the new, you know, purple people that we meet this week or whatever. But like, as far as the Federation itself goes, if they represent us and they've got this no money, you know, society, uh, ironclad democracy, it's hard to tell stories about money corrupting politics, you know, or the dangers of demagogic leaders. You know, if you don't, they can't do it on their stage. They've got to do it on some other stage. 
Yeah, I mean, they have to do it when they're interacting with a less advanced society. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, uh, they, they've done, uh, there's been tons of episodes of, of every type of Star Trek where that's like the focus is some society that's dealing with a problem that they don't have in the future anymore. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I I, I, I do, th- like, obviously the, the just sort of the commandments Roddenberry laid down about how people needed to treat themselves in the Federation does limit dramatically some of what you can do. Um, which has yeah. been taken less literally by every like subsequent incarnation of the show. You know, DS9 did a lot less of that and was a lot more morally gray. And nowadays we do a ton of morally gray stuff and Spock has a samurai sword. Um, or was that the other? I forget. I, the, the Abrams movies are all one colorful blur to me. Yeah, um, as they were designed to be. Yeah. Nobody uh, nobody does any drugs, uh, you know, That's responsibly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and even their alcohol is synthahol. So I know that like TNG itself was you know created in the '80s when you just weren't going to get people doing drugs on on TV in the '80s. That wasn't yeah. going to happen. But uh, I just think it's weird. Like if they have if they can have designer like tailored chemicals to give you an experience and then have you ready for your shift the next day. I, I don't know what the problem would be in showing that. And I, I imagine. I mean, I don't think there would be today. Um, and like the the Orville. Uh, includes a lot of that stuff it's it's better about that and i suspect that this new picard show when it comes out will probably be a little bit you know push that further than tng did um yeah i i I will say i have trouble imagining a society as advanced and ethical as the federation where people don't occasionally do mushrooms sure yeah and i I would love to see i would love to see like an episode where you know some character is involved in a horrible you know phaser fight or battle or whatever and they receive therapy that involves MDMA because right now that's the most like uh, the mo- the most successful treatment that they have any evidence of for PTSD. You know, most medicine for that has no better rate than placebos do, but something uh, MDMA has shown so far something like a seventy something percent success rate in treating uh, treatment resistant PTSD. So I you could totally justify having an episode where that's just the standard procedure and the the ship's counselors you know gives people therapy sessions and doses them with MDMA as they talk about their experiences sure. and go through them. Um, Rolling with Troy, I like it. Yeah, fuck yeah, I'd roll with Troy. <laughs> I'd roll with Riker. Uh, Riker sounds like he'd be a hell of a lot of fun on some Molly. Yeah, they're always the way that they seem to deal with everything is just go to their quarters and sit in the dark. And mm-hmm. like, there's several examples on TNG of children who are like recently uh, orphaned who oh, God, are just yeah. <laughs> just given a haircut and then put in a dark room somewhere, and yeah, he'll be fine. Yeah, there's there's some that that's all just sort of the. I mean, they they tried, but their writing of children is never very good. Um, I'd say they probably did a better job of writing female characters than pretty much any science fiction of the era. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. And uh, I would also say Synthahol is one of the dumbest concepts I've ever heard of in a, in a science fiction universe. At least the characters themselves seem to agree. They don't seem to like it very much. No, no. Why, why would you? What does that even mean? Like that it, you can shrug off the effects. I don't know. It's, 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 it's silly. Um, yeah, like non-dairy ice cream. I do wonder, like, can you just synthesize OxyContin? Because uh, if I ever wound up in like a survival capsule in space, like those, uh, like that that Texan banker from the 1990s in that one episode where they unfreeze people, 
I would just right. start making fucking mountains of, 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 you know, Demerol and whatever, like, <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I really want to see the state of journalism in Trek. Um, it's a pillar, you know, it's an estate. It's the fourth estate. It's a pillar of society. And we see Jake Sisko as a journalist for a little bit in DS9. It's not really focused on, though. There's so many things that happen in this crazy universe with thousands of planets. And any, like, paper, uh, if they exist, or, or news service can run whatever they want. I mean, there's no economic concerns. Um, you have a readership that comes to you for spe- specific opinions, I guess. But there's, you don't have to satisfy anything economically. There's no, it's all electronic, so there's no uh, cost of you know printing and press and stuff like that. You just survive solely by the strength of your work and I guess the interest that you generate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a dream, and I think in that world. Most journalism would probably be either focused around science and technology, what we call tech journalism today, the kind of stuff that Kara Swisher does where you're talking to scientists about developing technology and like evaluating new things. Uh, It would be a mix of that and uh, I think a lot of adventure journalism and a lot of war journalism. Um, I think you have (laughs) a lot of people, like the kind of thing I'd probably wind up doing in that society is just traveling to as many different places that are, you know, encountering disasters or conflict as I possibly could, assuming that like Federation transit is free um, and, and just tell those stories. And I imagine there would also be a lot of journalists doing kind of the ultimate evolution of travel journalism, where you're just going to new worlds and like camping and hiking and like telling people, here's what's out here. Here's these beautiful pictures of these weird, I imagine wildlife photography in the 24th century is oh yeah incredible. Um, just traveling a new world, seeing animals that people have never seen and taking beautiful shots of them. Yeah. That is something I'd like to see explored more in a subsequent, on a subsequent series, because it's definitely like kind of a dream future for journalism. Yeah, that would be a good uh, subject for a show. And it just uh, it's your description sounds like like 50 percent vice, 50 percent, you know, Michael Palin type uh, travelogue thing. Yeah, it, it'd be a mix of Ansel Adams and Hunter Thompson, um, there, albeit, there I go. guess, a more sober Hunter Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because Sith Hall. Got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so <laughs> you're 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 traveling around. You're talking to people who are, are in some pretty dire circumstances. Uh, you're researching some absolute bastards like uh, King Leopold II, and so you turn to Trek to to bliss out and get your head right. And you know why you, TNG specifically? Because it's what you grew up with. Yeah, it's just the one I I prefer. I I guess the I guess I'd say the questions that they ask on TNG are my favorite questions because like all sci-fi is about good questions, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the ones that are asked in that show are my favorite of the ones that are asked in any of the Star Treks as a as a collection. And I know that I can pop on pretty much any episode. I know that I can pop on Chain of Command one and two and like. Mm-hmm. have a really emotional experience and like see a really damning indictment of torture done by a, a, a society that now tends to glorify torturers and make heroes into people who casually do what uh, Picard speaks so strenuously against in that episode. But I could also yeah. put on Elementary My Dear Data and see one of the most absurd <laughs> 55 minutes of, of science fiction ever ever devised. 
uh, yeah. and watch Data in his ridiculous hat pretend to be Shakespeare or not Shakespeare, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and it's it's just it's just ridiculous, and I love it. A lot of people, for, you were mentioning uh, Chain of Command, which I was actually watching today, and people remember the torture scenes with Goma Dread, but they forget that the whole first hour is basically just the Enterprise reeling from the fact that they've got a new boss. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's all we, we see. Uh, we see the light touch that Picard has um, in reflected in the heavy hand that uh, Captain Jellico has. And you start to realize that these people really are. I don't know if this is just it's because it's a TV show or because you things are different in the 24th century in your workplace. But it's a workplace show like they are all uh, serving together, but they're also friends as well. And when yeah. I think about all the people that I used to work with who I wouldn't even want to share a synthal hall with, and I'm glad to go home at night, suddenly they're all being split up by this jerk that's come in. He's their new captain, and they're really they're really feeling it. Yeah, and that that's one of the few episodes they usually don't – like Starfleet is explicitly not just a military organization, but it is quasi-military. And that's one of the episodes where that's more evident than it usually is because like – Generally, Starfleet has a pretty light hand, too, on the ship. Like, you get the sense that Picard gets a lot of leeway, and probably more leeway than most captains because he's so good. And so it's extra jarring in that episode when you have this, like, strong military chain of command where, no, you don't question, you know, my... uh, my orders and like this like this is gonna happen this way and this is gonna happen this way like that's that's weird for the series and so it like because Jellico wouldn't be considered a particularly hard-ass military commander by the stand standards of any other military fiction sure um, but in star trek he comes across as draconian yeah uh, and that, that is really interesting to me so, like, I am a big original series fan, um, as well as being a big TNG fan, and I really love the solid storytelling of that era of TV. Like, they knew what they were doing. You know, those shows never got too fancy, but they delivered, like, engaging premises and cool characters, and they just, bam, bam, did it every single week. And TNG has a lot of the old Trek's uh, DNA, but I, I just, and I grew up with it, you know, as you did, and... So it's like right at the intellectual and, and, and emotional sweet spot for me uh, in terms of what I reach for. Um, you mentioned a couple episodes. Are there any other episodes uh, you can think of in TNG that uh, are just real go-to ones for you? Oh, man, I love Data Lore. That's a, that's a great episode. <laughs> I don't watch it too often because it makes me too sad. But uh, the best of uh, or, or All Good Things, the, the final episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe the best final episode of a show I've like just the the fact that it ends it not on like a big climactic note but with like everybody just sort of playing cards and it's just it's not the end of their journey but it's the end of you know what we get to see Um, yeah i really like it i really like it as an episode um just another day for them i had a question about uh data like why did data join starfleet like there's a lot of things that he he could have done I mean, I think any really intelligent creature, whether or not it's synthetically designed or not, and this may have been what Roddenberry was going for when uh, uh, he sort of came up with the idea, um, I think any intelligent creature is going to desire what so far every intelligent creature that we know of, of all the species on our planet we know of, they enjoy community. Um, Mm -hmm. You look at any really smart animal. Um, and they are social animals, from you know lions to, to apes to crows, um, to to dogs and cats. Like they they naturally are around others. 
Um, and that seems to be a thing that intelligent species, dolphins, whales, crave, is communication and uh, collaboration. And so it may be that just, although he does not have emotions in the traditional sense, once he became aware that there were other thinking beings uh, in you know, an organization like that, he naturally gravitated to it because that's just something intelligence seeks out. Yeah, he's also uniquely suited to uh, to that work of exploration and cataloging things, just because of his uh, his brain. I, you know, Star Trek. I think like TNG is is tries so hard in its kind of eighties way to be relevant, and I think that they really are. They're also coming in at the tail end of the Cold War while the original series was kind of right in the depths of the Cold War. And so that was kind of always backing the show. I don't know if you ever watched uh, Star Trek Enterprise. But Star Trek Enterprise, of course, released you know shortly after 9-11. And so I think that that informed quite a bit uh, what happened on Enterprise and not in a good way because it's not really a great show. Um, do you think that, or I guess I should say, what sort of cultural factors or events do you think will influence Trek going forward insofar as we live in an easily definable you know, political or social reality? I don't know what will happen. What I've seen happen with Discovery is them focus more on conflict and moral ambiguity. And uh, that does sometimes make for better stories. I know a lot of people who love Discovery. It's not my cup of tea. I'm not going to speak against it, obviously, but like... I think that's that's what I'm seeing happen right now. When I think about what I want for the Picard show that's in the works, yeah, uh, if they're going to have a show like Discovery where they focus more on you know conflict and turmoil and 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 that aspect of sort of this imagined future, I hope Picard's show, the new Picard show, goes back to the optimism. One thing that like I really appreciate about the original series, it's made in the depths of a Cold War in the time when there was maybe an unprecedentedly high level of distrust between nations and like this nuclear turmoil. We thought we might all wipe each other out with like an atomic hellfire, which is now can, you know, more of a worry than it was in recent past. Right. Uh, I would hope that they, and, and, and teen, or the original series had the courage to imagine like in the middle of this period, well, of course there's a Russian guy on the bridge and nobody gives a shit because like right. we're past that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like it, it, it doesn't, wait, people will get past that. And I hope that I hope that that's the attitude this new Picard series takes towards our current period of fake news and uh, 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 like increasing, you know, authoritarian uh, power in the lives of ordinary people. That we'll get past it. I hope that it takes that optimistic uh, tone towards it because that's at least what I want out of the show. I really hope so as well, although I just feel like the odds are probably on it doing the opposite. Yeah, he'll probably. Yeah, yeah. Picard will probably dropkick 30 guys in the first episode and have a machine gun and drive a dune buggy like he did in one of the, the movies. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I don't hate that, but <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, so... I like that Patrick Stewart got to drive a dune buggy because I want Patrick Stewart <laughs> to be happy and I know he likes driving, but. Yeah. Something that I always uh, am, have on my mind or something that's always concerned me about the show is the fact that the you know the world itself is kind of a character and we have gone to different 
periods in the life of that character from the 22nd century to the 23rd and the 24th. And I don't know, they probably didn't mean it this way, but you can kind of chart a growth and development, not just of the Federation but and the technology, but also of the character of the people of the Federation and humanity. And so it's a little more rough and tumble, maybe a little chauvinistic in the Kirk era. We're getting more woke. And so if you reach you know, a Picard show, if they continue to follow that arc, things should be really great. And yeah. I and I want them to be, and I almost kind of, I want them to do another show in the 25th century and everything is even better because who are you trying to convince by telling us that it's going to get bad somehow? Like, I like the fact that the, the, the arc of humanity is to go up and even when Picard, Kirk, our favorite characters, whoever die, they're gone. They are just tiny cogs in this machine that is sort of moving forward. It's, I don't know. I mean, just, I just think that that's kind of what Roddenberry thought uh, would be possible for humanity. I would love to see that. And I, I want to go at least back to, you know, Picard's lifetime and sort of, a, you know, a couple of decades after TNG. And I would love to see a show set 60 years after that, you know? Yeah. Um, that would be really interesting. Uh, I hope that they do that. And I hope that uh, we continue to get Star Treks in the future because uh, yeah. I think it's necessary. Yeah, I want to see the future of the future. Yeah. Well, Robert, thanks for talking Trek with me today. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at I Write OK. Um, I mostly tweet about neo-Nazi terrorist groups and uh, <laughs> things that bum me out. So uh, it's not a light read usually. Yeah. Um, you can find my podcast Behind the Bastards on uh, wherever fine pods are casted um, and I have a book called A Brief History of Ice which you which you talked about which you can find on Amazon so the, yes. those are the places that you can find me right now I do have a new podcast starting on the uh, 31st of March called It Could Happen Here which uh, is a speculative science fiction work but it's about a second American civil war about a year and a half in the future so it's not optimistic um, but check it out. <laughs> is that going to be, that's where all fine podcasts are, are sold and listened to as well? Yeah, yeah. It'll be through stuff uh, again, but it'll just be, you know, you go on Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes. It'll be on all the all the ones. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, 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 I love talking about Star Trek, so I love talking to you about Star Trek, and I appreciate you reaching out. Thanks to Robert for talking with me. You owe it to yourself to check out his podcast, Behind the Bastards, on the How Stuff Works Network. It really is eye-opening and entertaining. I specifically recommend the episodes about Saddam Hussein and his romance novels. Uh, the Elron Hubbard and Leopold II episodes are great, too. Robert also provides footnotes from his extensive research for the show. You can get those at BehindTheBastards.com. Also, Robert's new podcast, It Could Happen Here, debuts on March 28th. It's a nine-part series that examines a hypothetical second American civil war born out of the political tensions of the current social climate. You can find that and Behind the Bastards on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I should mention that Robert has a GoFundMe that I think is still running. I think it runs till the end of March. He is raising support for an audiobook he's writing using his experiences as a war correspondent and conflict journalist to interrogate the origins of our current war on terror. If you like his podcasts, you're probably going to like this latest project 
project he's cooking up too. So I'll leave a link to his GoFundMe in the show notes. Also, you may want to check out his book, A Brief History of Vice, How Bad Behavior Built Civilization, which we mentioned in the interview. It's got four and a half stars on Amazon compared to just four stars for The Kid Stays in the Picture, the autobiography of the other Robert Evans. So who's the real Robert Evans now, hmm? In Vice, Robert looks at the ways that mind-altering substances altered the development of humanity and society, and he talks with a lot of experts and generally brings the Evans brand of dogged journalism to a pretty fascinating subject. You can get the book on Amazon.com, and when you do, why not click through our link in the show notes to get there? When you get to Amazon by clicking through our links or through our Amazon banner at EnterprisingIndividuals.com, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you, and it helps keep the warp core lit here. And this counts for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. In fact, you can bookmark our banner, and when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon, click through our Amazon banner or through your bookmark or saved link and shop away. And maybe you're saying, Amazon? (laughs) Jeff Bezos is the greatest bastard of them all. To which I would say, first of all, the views of this hypothetical person created and voiced by me do not reflect my personal opinions or the opinions of Just Enough Trope Media. Please send the check, as usual, this month, Jeff. And second, the guy's sex got leaked. So we know at least that he's a human being, an an awkward, mortifyingly embarrassing human being. And he he did save the expanse. So maybe he's not all bad. But I would also say... If you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly amount and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content. Joining at our cadet tier gives you access to our live shows like our live event with Melinda Snodgrass, screenwriter of The Measure of a Man at Convergence last year. You also get my DS9 rewatch recaps. We just covered Melora, which has a lot of things to say about accessibility for the disabled and its importance. And we've got also Bioneural Gel Yaks, my series of Star Trek Voyager recaps. Still in season one, so get in on the ground floor of those, all of which are yours for being a cadet for just $12 a year. Joining at the Ensign or $5 level also gets you extended interviews from show guests containing off-topic discussions and outtakes, and you get access to Stellar Commentaries, our feature where we riff on classic episodes of the original series, plus you'll get sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show, show merch, and we'll thank you live on air for your contribution. Like right now, I'm thanking Ensign Thomas Garland, our newest patron, Thomas joined at the $5 level. Thanks, Thomas, and welcome aboard. So get involved. Join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Anyone can join our crew. Whether or not your parents are married, all are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. Our top comment on social media this week comes from Facebook user Wilhelm von Buch. Wilhelm was responding to one of a thousand of those posts. You know, you know them. They're like, uh, if Section 31 is, is out in the open on Discovery, everybody knows about it. How come they're secretive and barely anybody knows about them later on DS9? And Wilhelm sagely and plainly replied, because stuff is going to happen. A reply so chill, so water-flowing-around-the-rock Zen Buddhist, so get that on a pillow that I had to immortalize it with a little Photoshop ditty, including a host of characters that didn't break canon, they simply made it richer. So thanks for that bit of perspective, Wilhelm, for winning top comment this week. You will receive a home pillow stitching kit. Spread your wisdom, sir.
Remember, listeners, you can tweet to us or message the show and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod or find us at at EISTpod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. Join our Facebook discussion group called Enterprising Interlocutions to continue the discussion of the themes and characters of Star Trek. You can also reach the show at EISTpod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts? Make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcast listener, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. We all know the tropes of film noir, chiaroscuro visuals, a hard-boiled private dick, a deadly woman, and overwritten inner monologue. Constable Odo isn't exactly a Raymond Chandler hero, but he finds himself entangled in an old case, an unsolved murder that started his career as a law enforcement officer, but the one that got away might turn out to be someone very close to him. Heel Mary and Gooey fame of the TNG podcast Existence is Futile. Join me next week to talk about an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine that begins by turning the lights down and ends with Odo and Kira's friendship on the rocks. It's Necessary Evil next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. <laughs>